Tehran announced this morning that its troops had been poured into Czechoslovakia at the urgent request of Czechoslovak leaders. Statements by the official Soviet news agency said that party and government leaders of the Czechoslovak Republic had asked the Soviet Union and other allied states to render the fraternal Czechoslovak people urgent assistance, including assistance with armed forces. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 14 of Cold War Conversations. Before we start, I'd like to invite you to our vibrant discussion group on Facebook. There's a wide range of people there, including academics, military veterans, authors and others who are interested in the Cold War period. There's lots of extra Cold War Conversations material there to get your teeth into. Just search Cold War Conversations on Facebook. Today, we have with us Alani Seelinger of Socialism Realised, which is an excellent website and learning environment that uses multimedia content as teaching aids about the communist regimes in Europe. Using the Czechoslovak example, they describe the specifics of life in the Eastern Bloc. Their material attempts to bring the experiences, thoughts, feelings and problems of people who lived during this era to life. Their aim is to reproduce the complexities and dilemmas of life under communism, I do recommend you check them out at socialismrealized.eu. In today's episode, we return to Czechoslovakia and one of the most iconic moments of the Cold War, the Prague Spring of 1968, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. Some of you will have seen the film of Alexander Dubček and the adoring crowds, as well as the powerful images of the Warsaw Pact invasion. Our chat shows that beneath these images, there's more nuances, and I hope you will find the episode insightful and entertaining. I'm delighted to welcome Lani Seilinger. Hi, Lani. How are you today? I am great, Ian. How are you? I'm good, actually. Thank you very much. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. We did arrange this a while back, actually, if I recall. We did. We did. It was a couple of months, and I've been looking forward to it as well. Fantastic, fantastic. Can you uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and about um, the Socialism Realized project? Yeah, definitely. So I work at the Department of Education at the Institute for the Study of Totalitarian Regimes in Prague, which has a very fancy name, but which specifically deals with only two periods in Czechoslovak history, those being the Nazi occupation and then the communist period. So in our department, we're specifically focused on developing history teaching materials that can help teachers and students reckon with these periods in history, which, as we know, are both difficult and often contested. Um, and so Socialism Realized is really the department's first effort at looking internationally. We call it an educational learning environment, um, and it was meant to offer uh, materials that cover the Czechoslovak communist past that would also be appropriate for international audiences, including those who like know nothing about communist history, who the only thing they've heard of communism is that something like Obama's a communist. 
Um, so these are our, we aim at those people and at people who have studied the period more deeply, working mostly with historical sources like video clips, photographs, uh, all in an effort to help people understand not only sort of like the bigger narratives of the Cold War, but also what it was actually like to live in a communist country. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very important aspect. And I, I really recommend the uh, listeners to go and have a look at the website. Um, it's socialismrealized.eu, but I will add that link to the, uh, the, the show notes. So obviously we're, we're here to, tonight to talk about the Prague Spring um, of 1968, but I think we probably have to go back and just have a, a quick recap of Czechoslovakia you know, in the 1950s and 60s, and also um, Antonin Novotny, who was the um, the leader prior to the uh, Prague Spring. Could you just give a little bit of an outline on that? Sure, definitely. So Czechoslovakia, I mean, as we know, each country sort of had their own path through the communist period as a whole. And Czechoslovakia were uh, was quite a bit slower getting rid of Stalinism uh, than the rest of the Eastern Bloc, including, of course, the Soviet Union. Basically, when Khrushchev laid out the new rules in the secret speech in 1956, Novotny uh, and his colleagues decided not to pay attention to them and instead to enact a form of neo-Stalinism that would push back against any of these major reforms. So under his leadership, this meant that the economy became quite stagnated uh, and any dissent or calls for freedom of speech, anything like that was all suppressed. This started to change in the early 1960s, which was still a lot later than the rest of the few of the hardline communists in the government were replaced with a couple of more reform-minded leaders. Um, And so you started to see smaller changes, like, for example, with the victims of some of the show trials uh, getting rehabilitated. Um, 1965 was a big year because it saw the suggestion of a new economic model that would help with the economic stagnation. And another like series of economic and social reforms that were suggested by the party itself. But then when they were supposed to come, when they were supposed to be enacted in 1967, instead of actually putting them in place, Novotny chose to amend some of them to make them weaker uh, and also to strengthen the position of the party. And so this didn't really go over well with the reform wing of the party. And that sort of sets us up for what then happens in 1968. Okay. And then also in 1967, I understand there was a a Writers' Congress, which was a a sort of precursor to some of the liberalisation in the Prague Spring. They were sort of like pushing more than perhaps other areas of the country. Yes, that is correct. So the 1967 Writers' Congress gathered together the names who we now know as some of the of Czechoslovakia's or the Czech Republic's most internationally well-known writers like Ludvík Václík or Ivan Klima or Milan Kundera, um, who weren't internationally known at that point. At this Writers' Congress, they openly criticized the party. They called for major reforms like the abolition of censorship um, and also for like a full rehabilitation of the country's literary traditions, which had sort of been... Uh, hushed over the last couple of decades. Um, and while these were very popular ideas, uh, Novotny responded to them with a lot more repression, including uh, expelling some of these writers from the party. But this actually caught the public's attention. And then it turned into sort of a catalyst for the final, like the reform movement that would bring about Prague Spring, because it really put pressure on the regime to enact these reforms. Right. And well, what I found interesting is that I was reading today because I was, you know, getting ready as you do, this, as you do. Um, that Dubček 
actually supported that sort of like slamming of the door with the Writers Congress at that moment in time. Yeah, yeah. Dubček is an interesting character. I mean, he's got like, he he was a hero at the time. He still thought of a hero now, as a hero now and for lots of good reasons. But um, what people don't know is that he was actually quite a bit like he wasn't at all interested in pluralism at the time. And he was quite a bit more dedicated to the communist ideals than I think uh, people who have sort of seen him as this really heroic figure um, would believe. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right there because I, you know, the more I read about him, the more I see some, you know, contradictions in there, and you know that the fact that well, and we're probably moving along a bit a bit now, but obviously <laughs> Novotny is voted out by the rest of the party, and Dubček is voted mm-hmm. in as first secretary. Is that what happens? That is exactly what happens. Um, but it's an interesting way that it happens. This is one of my favorite parts of Dubček's story. Um, he was pushing reforms in what would become Slovakia much faster than they were happening in the Czech lands in the first half of the 1960s. Um, and then he really like put Novotny on the defensive when he and Otašik, who had developed the new economic model, when they stood up to Novotny openly in a meeting. And so Novotny calls in Brezhnev to his defense. But when Brezhnev got there, he sort of saw the direction that things were heading. Like he saw that Dubček had all the, all the popular support um, and Novotny had a lot of uh, like public opposition. Um, but also importantly, the Soviets really liked and trusted Dubček. And they really believed that he was going to be like their man in Czechoslovakia because he had actually completed um, a significant part of his part of his education in the Soviet Union. Um, so they were really pleased with all of the support that Dubček was getting. And so Brezhnev just stepped out of the way and let the vote happen. Uh, and then Dubček became the first secretary in January of 1968. Right. And, and that's interesting because obviously they thought he was a safe pair of hands. He was a loyal yeah. party member, you know, all, all mm-hmm. of that stuff. Yeah. Yet once he gains power, there's a... Uh, I don't know. It, I almost get the impression that he sort of like loses control of what's going on. I wouldn't necessarily say that. Like he, I think what a more accurate way of putting it would be that he, um, he didn't necessarily see his reforms as, uh, as like letting go of control, even letting go of like the communist party's control. Um, like maybe there were some, like there were some, places where the party had to actually actively like step in and shut things down, but it was never his, like it was always his goal to keep things like as a one party system, um, totally normal communist country. That was just this like socialism with a human face. Yeah. That was, like that was the yeah. difference. But the, the thing that I don't sort of understand is how he <laughs> thought that he could do that by getting rid of censorship and allowing complete freedom of the press. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing to think about. Um, maybe, maybe he thought that since like he was dedicated to the ideology, that other people would be too, even with like freedom of speech. But that's totally speculation on my part. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I also don't, don't understand. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting contradiction. So when he yeah. gains power, he has his own program, and obviously uh, the removal of censorship and freedom of the press is one part of it. What yeah. other aspects were were mm-hmm. sort of parts of his program? Well, so he also uh, let people travel abroad. That was new. Um, and then also importantly, he let like new like civic society organizations form and even political parties started forming. 
um, even ones that could like provide an alternative to the regime. Um, and the, people were getting quite excited about it. And of course, that's where it started running into problems where like the party saw how quickly the political organizations were gathering a lot of support and a lot of like people joining up. Um, and so they acted quickly to limit this and to shut that entirely down, even while keeping like the other forms, the freedom of speech and the abolition of censorship, like those went on. And yeah. there were also, of course, like additional economic reforms um, and sort of like societal reforms that they enacted. But I think the most famous parts of socialism with a human face are like the freedom of speech and no censorship and travel and everything like that. Yeah. Okay. And so um, the likes of Albrecht in East Germany and um, Gomulka in Poland and, and Brezhnev, they're, they're not overjoyed at these, are they? They're not, no. <laughs> they're really not. Um, and of course, like, you know, Soviet Union at the head and they didn't like it. So they were just like, they saw it and the other way that Dubček did, like the opposite way, that if these reforms were allowed to continue, then communism was truly threatened in Czechoslovakia. And I think the, mo- the ones that thought of them the most were the lack of censorship and the fact that these like civil society, that this civil society was starting to blossom, that these new political organizations were starting to form, or in some cases, in w- which is probably even more dangerous, um, some parties were starting to reform, uh, like with the social Democrats, who of course couldn't exist uh, when communism started, but had existed as a functioning political party for a long time before the advent of the communist regime. Right. So it's the classic communist fear of counter-revolution in, yes, exactly. uh, in Slovakia. Okay. Exactly. And, and, and were there any Warsaw Pact countries that did support Dubček? There were. Um, Albania supported Dubček. They actually ended up leaving rather than participating in the invasion. Um, and Romania also, choose, also chose not to participate they didn't leave the Warsaw Pact though. And then Yugoslavia, of course, wasn't part of the Warsaw Pact, but they publicly supported Czechoslovakia against the Soviet Union. Okay. And so Brezhnev uh, invites Dubček and um, his party colleagues to various meetings to mm-hmm. uh, sort of uh, uh, discuss the um, diversions that they're um, going down um <laughs> yes <laughs> and so so what does Dubček do does he try and stop some of this stuff or does he just think that the you know the soviet union or the warsaw pact is going to let him get on with it well i think i think kind of both i think they kind of t- tried to like toe the line between those those two choices um they had seen what happened to hungary in 1956 and so there were like some people were worried that uh that the soviet union would like actually invade czechoslovakia i don't think dubček was actually one of these people i think he really was optimistic that they would keep going because they like you know knew that he was so dedicated to communism to this like socialism with the human face mm-hmm. um and so they really like they were they were trying to appease the Soviets and to like make promises to the Soviets while at the same time also not giving up on the reforms. Yeah. Okay. Cause I saw that, uh, Janosch Kada, is it the, the leader mm-hmm. of, uh, Hungary at the time who'd, who'd come yeah. on, who'd become leader after the 1956 uprising was sort of like yeah. trying to act as a sort of like intermediary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, sort of, you know, explain to Dubček, look, you're going to have to get this sorted out, but also to try and get Brezhnev to not, you know, send the tanks in. Yeah, I actually didn't know that. That's a, that makes so much sense. 
I, I, I'm just fascinated by this subject, so I have I have read a little, a little oh, bit on this. But, um, <laughs> um, when you know what what are the circumstances that makes Brezhnev and the other Warsaw Pact uh, participants, you know, decide to to go in? I mean, what is the the straw that breaks the camel's back? Um, that's a really good question. I actually don't know the answer. Um, they had their like major last meeting, um, pretty like only basically weeks before the eventual, uh, invasion. And I think the Czechoslovaks at that point, like thought everything was cool. Um, but then the Soviets decided that it wasn't, that's a really good question. I don't know what was the, what was like the moment that actually switched from invasion, from not invasion to invasion. Yeah. So the countries that participate in the invasion are mm-hmm. Poland, um, Hungary, mm-hmm. the Soviets. Do the Bulgarians come in? Yes, they do. Um, but the East Germans, because of their uh, previous history with Czechoslovakia, are invited yes. to stay at home, I understand. Yes. yes, supportive of the invasion, but not invited to join because... Goodness knows if the Czechoslovaks saw German German uniforms in the streets, they would probably encounter, or these uniforms would probably encounter slightly greater resistance than if they were yeah. strictly Soviet, yeah. Bulgarian, Polish. <laughs> so how, how was the invasion carried out? Because it seems amazing that they, it appears as though they managed to take over the country in very short order with very little resistance. Yes, that is exactly what happened. Um, it happened overnight. It happened like the first troops started crossing the border at 11 p.m. And they crossed uh, into this not so big country with 250,000 troops initially on the ground, which would eventually balloon up to 500,000. Um, with them, they had 2,000 tanks and they had a particular mission uh, that was sent by air from Moscow that was meant specifically to take over the airport in Prague which was important for them like to be able to carry out some parts of the mission. Right. Um, and so they basically just started rolling in. Uh, the Czechoslovak army didn't mobilize. And so the people just sort of woke up to the sounds of war, like tanks uh, and gunshots, planes. Nobody knew what was going on. And they were told immediately not to resist. And for the most part, they listened. Okay. And none of the Czech military resisted at all. I would have thought there must have been some hotheads around. The Czechoslovak military didn't do anything. Um, there was a couple people that probably did like put up a fight. But actually, in the end, the majority of the people who were killed and wounded, it was by accident. It was by like, it was by being hit by cars or by tanks. Uh, it wasn't even like in protest. Like people were curious and came out. Um, but they weren't carrying out any sort of violent protest for the most right. part. Okay, I, I read an interesting story about a Polish army unit who entered Czechoslovakia and mm-hmm. the population were taking all the signs down and turning them around yeah. and they managed <laughs> yeah. to redirect this Polish army unit in out, out of Czechoslovakia and back into Poland. <laughs> I don't know whether that's a true story, but it's a great tale, whatever it is. Well, yeah, I, that definitely, I haven't heard that in such specificity, but I've definitely heard of the troops like stealing either stealing road signs um, taking everything down that was useful, pretending not to speak Russian, all that sort of thing. And and how did the the general Czech population um, react in the in the days following the invasion? Well, I think they were like they had been told by like the the uh, the radio when it was still broadcasting. Like Dubček put out messages where he could saying like don't do anything, basically don't react. 
And so you see a lot of footage of people coming in and just kind of like being really curious, like looking around, bringing in check flags. But then some of them just like going to work. Yeah. I think it was a hodgepodge for the most part. And there was a lot of that, that what we were talking about, like nonviolent resistance, you know, talking to people and telling them to go back home and putting up signs and like, you know, being mean, spitting at soldiers and things like that. Uh, But like, no. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. No huge resistance. Yeah, you see I've, you see some amazing photos, particularly the uh, Josef Kudelka um, mm-hmm. series of photos, which are just so powerful. And you can see these people trying to have a conversation with these uh, Soviet yeah. troops. Yeah, and like we can imagine that they definitely did speak Russian. They would have had yeah. to study it in school. Yeah. And so... They were, you know, using their communication skills for, <laughs> for good. And so the, the, the Czech Communist Party, what, what happens mm-hmm. to them? Does Dubček get seized on the first day? Yeah, so Dubček and some of his, like, closest and some of the most powerful uh, reform uh, elements of the Presidium were taken away directly to Moscow. So basically, like, they didn't really have a chance to, like, react in front of the country or anything like that. Um, later it wasn't, this wasn't clear at the time, but later it came out that some of the people in the conservative wing of the party had actually been conspiring with the Soviets to put together an excuse for the invasion, which they called, which was eventually this like invitation letter that was calling for the fraternal assistance from the friendly powers of the Warsaw Pact. Uh, but this came out only much later. So, but it did show that there was a segment of the party that was worried enough about the reforms to actually be in favor of the invasion. Right. Um, and then eventually the party as a whole, the Czechoslovak communist party as a whole had to, had to sign what was called the Moscow protocol, um, which brought back censorship and started ridding the party of its reform wing and definitely suppressed these political or other opposition groups for good. Um, and that generally got back, got the country back in a direction that the Soviets saw as being like more on track. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, what's surprising is that, you know, they they did negotiate to some degree with Dubček in in Moscow. It appears as though they thought yeah. he was so popular that they couldn't just get rid of him overnight, which is probably their preferred option. Well, exactly, and they decided not to get rid of him overnight. They decided that he was too popular even to be like deposed as the first secretary, um, even when after he was sent back from Moscow. So he actually retained the position until April of 1969 uh, when the Czechoslovak hockey team beat the beat the Soviets in the world hockey championship in Stockholm that year. And that of course sent like people celebrating out into the street and then people celebrating in the street turned into rioting. 
And then the military and the police had to quell those riots. And then that was enough of an excuse for the Soviets probably finally to give the Czechoslovaks a final push to get Dubček out of that position. Right. So that took a while. Okay. And then there were some other there were some other members of the the reform like leadership who stayed in their positions until 1970 or 1971. So this wasn't like an overnight process by any means. Wow, wow! But but they were forced to toe the line. Yeah, I mean they didn't have like the power that they had during Prague Spring, and they weren't getting their getting their voices heard clearly. But um, but they were still there. Okay. Okay, and I, d- I noticed that the you know the Russians were accused the Americans of some interference as well, um, that they were fermenting some of this uh, liberalism. The thing that I read, which I found really interesting, is that is there was a war film being made in uh, Czechoslovakia called The Bridge at Raymargen, uh-huh. um, which was a World War II war film that featured uh, American soldiers and American tanks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the Russians took photos of these tanks and soldiers as pro- or these actors as proof that there were oh, American wow. troops in Czechoslovakia, <laughs> um, which I thought was an, an interesting story as well. And Bridget Raymargan's not a bad film either. I'll, I'll have to um, give it a look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure where where it's filmed in uh, in Czechoslovakia, but uh, anyway. <laughs> so how, how did the West respond? Um, to the invasion of Czechoslovakia and the suppression of the Prague Spring? Well, I think it makes sense that the Soviets would have, um, would have accused the Americans of like fomenting resistance because the West, including the States, um, was like largely united in condemning the sovereignty of a free nation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there was a speech from the Czechoslovak representative at the UN, and a lot of the UN was like ready to pass a resolution condemning it. They tried to. Um, it didn't succeed, though, because, of course, there were disagreements between the other countries and, of course, the USSR had veto power. Uh, part of the issue was that the U.S. Um, had sort of helped some of these sort of invasions along in, the, in Central America. And so their voice wasn't exactly, um, it couldn't be taken quite as seriously as they would have liked to. Um, and then Western media outlets covered it a lot. I think it was actually a Western journalist or a Western media outlet that coined the term Prague Spring to begin with. Right. Um, but the West, like they drew a lot of sympathy to Czechoslovakia, but besides actually taking in some of the Czechoslovak refugees, because tens and thousands, tens of thousands of people emigrated right when, like right after the invasion. Uh, and so the West did step up to take these people in, but no Western country actually like took any action against the invasion or against the Warsaw Pact. Okay, so do you know what the reaction was of the Western communists to this? Because obviously they're, most of them are adhering to the Soviet sort of doctrine, and then the yeah. Soviets go in and invade a sovereign Warsaw Pact country. Yeah, so this, I, after you asked the question, I did some reading up on this, and it's really interesting, actually. Like, this moment was a huge turning point in terms of communism as a worldwide movement, exactly because it was split. So you had some communist parties denouncing it, denouncing the invasion. Um, you had some communist parties split in terms of whether they wanted to denounce it or not. Uh, there were some that supported it. Um, a good example, I think, is Finland, which, of course, was a Western country that it was really important for them to maintain good relations uh, with, with the USSR. Mm-hmm. They chose Their majority chose to speak out against the invasion, but then there was a minority of the members who supported it, and this eventually led to the breakup of the Finnish Communist Party as a whole. Um, 
Yeah. And so like they're like people have noted Prague Spring and then the invasion and then the reaction to it as one of the like final death knells uh, in the sort of movement of like communism as an international as an international thing. Yeah. Now I've heard a term in the UK of those communists in the UK that were still hardcore sort of Soviet line of communism after the Prague Spring. They, their nickname was Tankies. Tankies. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's brilliant. <laughs> so how how many were, were killed or injured? Are there any sort of numbers on during the Prague Spring? Yes, we do. We have a specific number for people killed. That was 137. Uh, so a pretty small number. Of course, it's lives lost, um, which is all bad, um, but not very big in terms of like how big the country was and how big the invasion was. The numbers that we have for people injured is much more blurry, like probably another couple hundred, 2,000, something like that, but we don't know exactly. Right. And of course, there was the um, incident with uh, Jan Palak as well, wasn't mm-hmm. there? Yes, Jan Palak, he was a student who in 1969 uh, was he was not happy about how people had sort of just gotten used to the fact that there were Soviet troops hanging out in their country. He felt like it had just become normal um, and he wanted people to start resisting again. So he thought that the best way to incite this sort of rebellion would be to um, set himself on fire in the middle of Wenceslas square, which is of course like the, one of the main squares in Prague. He eventually was put out, uh, but then, then taken to the hospital where he died like the next day. And he was immediately like a national hero. Um, this was, this was already in January of 1969, I believe. Um, right. so it was a little bit after. Yeah. And, that, and then I there was somebody that, else who did the same thing. Yeah, that's right. They're both commemorated on, uh, Wenceslas square. I've seen the, um, the yes. memorial there. Yes, exactly. Okay, so so what happened to the country after the Prague Spring? I mean, how how did they sort of get it back in in line? We we mentioned Dubček was was voted out as leader in uh, early sixty nine. Mm-hmm. Um, so then then what happened? So the end of Prague Spring meant the beginning of the period that's called normalization, which, as you can tell from the name, just means a return to like the normal form of government, the normal communism. Um, This meant that basically the social reforms that were the most famous parts of the Prague Spring, like the steps towards political pluralism, the lack of censorship, the ability to travel abroad, all of these were then walked back after the invasion. So these sort of like social reforms didn't have a lasting impact on the country's government. Although importantly, the borders were kept open for a little bit longer. And a lot of people ended up like emigrating that way before they were closed back down. But then in the economic side, some of those reforms actually stayed. So normalization, it wasn't a return to like hardline Stalinism, but rather this like late state socialism, which was a period of like strong economic and political control by the central party. Um, But there was less central control of the economy than they had been before. Like, for example, they didn't um, regulate prices anymore. Uh, but there was still this really strict embargo on any civic activities that didn't follow the official party line. So the real, what they saw as the real problems of Prague Spring were just wiped right. totally clean. And, and what happened to uh, Dubček? Where did he end up? Well, Dubček eventually, he stayed in Czechoslovakia. He was expelled from the party. 
Um, and he eventually went back to Slovakia and he had, a, everybody had to work if you were of an age to work. And so he had a job working in the forest, I believe, doing some sort of like menial labor, which is where a lot of like the, some of their former, even the politicians, um, but also, you know, like liberal minded intellectuals with, with endings or, you know, digging holes. When you say, how did Dubček end up? That like yeah. wasn't how he lived out the rest of his life. Um, no. <laughs> I forgot. When the Velvet Revolution rolled around, it turned out that he actually did uh, retain most of his popularity. So when that started happening, when it started to become clear that like communism was on the way out, then like Dubček re-entered like the public sphere. Um, and he was like there at Wenceslas Square when Václav Havel was there. Uh, like right during the Velvet Revolution, so he actually like entered entered the public space again uh, after communism. Yeah, and he tried to stop the breakup, didn't he? Of um, mm-hmm. yeah, he and Havel were not for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how how do you think the the Prague Spring influenced the the future Czechoslovak policy up 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 to eighty nine? I mean, were there did they try and sort of keep people happy by them having more consumer goods and things like that? Um, I think I'm not positive, but I think not as much maybe as would have happened in other countries, like more, uh, the Czechoslovak leadership was really reticent to do anything that would have like approached a reform because they saw what happened during the last one. And so they like, in order to avoid any retaliation, they had this like really hard line conservative communist government and that stayed in control until 1989. And so like, you certainly see people, um, like getting nostalgic about the consumer goods that they did have during normalization, but you still had like shortages and things like that, that made life pretty difficult for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, But also I think it really did influence the, the way the revolutions took place because like you saw in Poland and Hungary, the revolutions were pretty slow and gradual. They happened like over time with like different steps taking place at different times. Um, but in Czechoslovakia, these steps just really didn't have any space to take place. And so if any re- revolution was going to happen, it was going to have to be sudden and very fast. And so then you saw the Velvet Revolution, which took place in a period of just 10 days. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was amazingly fast. Um, yeah. And I think Prague Spring really influenced that. Right. Okay. No, that's interesting. And how was the – well, I guess in the period of normalization – how mm-hmm. was the Prague Spring remembered, or was it not? Was it did they try and f- forget about it or not mention it? Yeah, so publicly it was it was forgotten. It was not mentioned, and we actually for a while we were thinking about using a video clip that showed that. Um, it showed like people. It was somebody like going up to people on the streets with a video camera and asking about Prague Spring. Like it was a, it was an anniversary of Prague Spring and they were asking like, do you know what today is the anniversary of? Yeah. And people just like didn't know. But of course we don't know whether it was that they didn't know or that they weren't willing to talk about it in public. Mm-hmm. Um, because of course a really defining factor of normalization was that people had very different private and public lives. And so there's a very good chance that the families would have passed along their memories. The you know parents would have told their children about how they experienced Prague Spring. Um, and then the, the kids were just, you know, told not to talk about it in public. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it wasn't part of the public memory at that yeah. point. And, and now post 89, is it, is the date celebrated in any way or, or what, how is it seen now? 
Yes, it is hugely celebrated. And this is this year, like the 50th anniversary is a great, great example of that. There's exhibitions, there's, um, you know, flowers at the monuments. There's a lot of talk about it, um, like a lot of media coverage of the anniversary and of memories of it. Um, it's very much celebrated as sort of like a, a more democratic interlude during the communist history. Right. Okay. That's, that's, that's interesting. So obviously with this being the 50th anniversary, it is going to be um, quite a, quite a big deal, I guess. Yeah. And they're really, they're really making like a whole year's worth of big deal out of it. I would say like there've already been so many like events, like for the public, um, you know, talking to like people who experienced it, these people being interviewed in the media, like there's, there's been a whole lot of it already. Yeah. And do you, I mean, in the UK, we get like military reenactors who sort of <laughs> reenact stuff. Do, do they, does that happen in Czechoslovakia? I can't ma- imagine many people vol- volunteering to be the Red Army, to be honest. But Well, you know what? Uh, I haven't seen anything about military reenactors, but they were shooting something. I forget what it was, what it was for, whether it's for like a mini series or something on Czech television or what, but they had uh, some like tanks and people in like costumes. Cause it was like for, they were all like, you know, dress up the extras and everything. Yeah. And this was actually pretty highly publicized. And so a lot of people, including myself, um, like went out to go see the tanks like roll in front of like the Charles University building. I think they were on like Narodnichita, like the main the main yeah. sort of like boulevard. Um, so yeah, wow. I, I don't think they've done. I'm not sure. I couldn't be sure. Maybe they have done something like that um, yeah. per, more purposefully. But that film shot shoot was very popular. <laughs> that must have been quite eerie seeing. It was that. really interesting. Yeah, it was really really. Well, it was funny because like you'd see the people in sort of their like sixties clothes, like sitting on the sidelines and they'd be told to like cross the street in front of the tank or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was wow. really strange. It was, it was really, really strange, but cool. Yeah. What do you think would have happened if the Warsaw Pact had not invaded Czechoslovakia? Well, so this is just me entirely speculating. That's um, what I want. That's what I want, Lana. Okay. I want your <laughs> speculation. Come on. Okay. Well, you won't, you won't find this on socialism realize for sure. No, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that the idealistic take would be to say that like reforms that like pointed towards pluralism would have led to real democracy arriving sooner. But I don't think that actually like would have happened because it would have required the hardliners in the Czechoslovak government to just give up their power um, and for the Soviet Union to let it happen. And so I can't imagine, I can't imagine really that happening because they just wanted to keep their sphere of influence and the hardliners still, even in Prague Spring, were too powerful. Um, I think it's interesting to consider what would have happened if this like socialism with a human face had eventually sort of evened out into, into a form of socialism that people would have been like satisfied enough with to live with even after 1989. Like Mm. what if, what if Prague Spring could have created something that like would have led to the Velvet Revolution not happening? But then that like assumes that there is some ideal form of socialism that like can exist, but we've never seen that and we don't know what form it would take. And so, yeah, no one knows exactly what that would look like or if it could even exist. And so I'm not, that's what, that's what is, that's what is interesting to me to think about, but I can't say that I think that would have happened. Like, I don't know that I really see any other way that, the, that it would have played out, honestly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you think, um, because Poland had some periods of liberalisation with Gomułka and, you know, and then they sort of got a bit more hardline again. Do you think, you know, solidarity sort of learned Mm. anything from from Prague Spring in terms of its non-violent resistance? Or maybe they just thought that was the only way? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, maybe. But I mean, yeah, like... I can't imagine that these movements didn't like build on one another. I mean, you, like you saw the Czechoslovaks being like a little bit nervous about the invasion because of the Hungarian invasion. And so maybe, maybe there were other reforms they would have enacted if they hadn't been worried about like, what if 1956 happens to us? Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I'm sure that some, that, that Poland and the solidarity movement would have looked to them. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I guess Dubček and the rest of them must have thought themselves very lucky they didn't get executed. Yeah, although I think in, like, 1968, like, I think it would have been very surprising if they had stepped back into those, like, Stalinist tactics. I think that was, like, well enough gone. I don't think Brezhnev would have done that. Maybe I don't know Brezhnev well enough. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah. No, yeah, maybe maybe you're right. I mean, there, there is, you know, you do read that sort of, like, you know, some of the worst excesses sort of did start to tone down in the late 50s, 60s. Yeah, um, and, like, because at that point... Now. Like there were plenty of punishments, like and with them being expelled from the party and having to work terrible jobs. I think this was like pretty much the punishment that people knew they could get. Yeah, yeah. Are there, are there any places that you that you'd recommend people visit to better understand the Prague Spring? Yeah, you know, like speaking of solidarity, Gdansk has that excellent European Solidarity Center that I would recommend to everybody. Um, Prague hasn't done anything like that, even though Prague Spring would be excellent material to build some sort of a museum or like center to to think about movements like this. Um, there, There is a museum of communism in Prague that has recently been renovated to be better than sort of like the kitschy collection of, you know, 1970s material that it used to be. But I haven't been there, so I can't personally recommend it. I, I did go there this year, actually. Oh, and I, how I, is it? I thought it was good, actually. Okay. I, it was better than I thought because I'd seen the early pictures <laughs> of it. Okay, um, good, good. And I thought it was quite an even-handed approach, well laid out and told the story well. So um, That's great. You know, I'm give really it a go. One thing I would recommend is the National Monument up on Vítkov Hill in Prague. They have the museum. It's like run by the National Museum, and it's the Museum of Czechoslovak and Czech Statehood. And so it kind of looks at the Czechoslovak state. Um, and that gives you, obviously, there's some, there's some material in there about Prague Spring. But more than that, it gives you like the whole story of the 20th century in this country. So it offers the broader context that you get for Prague Spring. And okay. then and and Sorry, that's the that is that the place where Clement Gottwald was lying in state, you know, preserved that, a bit like Lenin yes. in Red Square. Yes, it is exactly that. And I do think that the best part of that national monument is the fake embalmed Clement Gottwald. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, unfortunately, <laughs> it was closed the day I was in Prague because I oh. had that on my list. I will have to come back. <laughs> There's also an excellent view from the top of it if you go on a on a sunny day <laughs> or at sunset, even better. But yeah, the Clement Gottwald is great. And then the other places I would recommend are like the places of memory, like the memorials that are dotted all over the place. And so you can see how people have remembered it, specifically Mm -hmm. in Prague, like the Jan Palak Memorial is a good example on Wenceslas Square. Or his death mask um, is like bronzed as a statue um, at the Charles University faculty on what is now fittingly called Jan Palak Square. 
over right. by like the Rudolphinum. So those yeah. are those are good places. And if you come around some anniversary, like say of of um, of Prague Spring or like of when he um, burned himself, then you'll see flowers and you'll see people coming by and taking pictures. Like these are these are definitely places that people remember. Okay. Okay. No, that's that's really good. You're giving a really good recommendation of Prague there. The, <laughs> The Tourist Information Centre will be very pleased. Well, I, I used to be a tour guide, so they should be. Oh, well, there you go. There <laughs> you go. So, do you think there's anything about the Prague Spring that many people might not be aware of? Yeah, definitely. I think the main thing um, would be what we were talking about before, that like the Czechoslovak Communist Party and that Dubček himself was really dedicated to communism and really against pluralism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had gotten into my head sort of this more like idealistic uh, picture of the Prague Spring. And I didn't know it until I was like presented with some meeting minutes from the party presidium meeting about the like reformation of the Czech social Democrats um, as like a potential thing to put on socials and realized that I like read it and was really surprised. Like in these meetings, they were not discussing like, Oh, should we shut them down? Like, what should we do? The question, the question that was decided, they were going to get rid of these parties. The question was, how are they going to do it to limit the political damage to themselves? Yeah. People have this image of Dubček as this great liberal who wants to bring democracy to uh, Czechoslovakia, but he's a more nuanced yeah. character. <laughs> Absolutely. He really is. And it's a more nuanced event. Like, yeah. I think that he cared about the country and that he really wanted to do the best thing for it. But I think that he thought the best thing to do for it was to definitely keep it a socialist country. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. <laughs> is there a, a film or TV series that you think is a good representation of the Prague spring? So I can list a couple of not so good ones. Um, we have, <laughs> no, we have one. Like we honestly, I think it could be like the next, you know, Netflix hit miniseries because we basically we use one film called Those Wonderful Years That Sucked, which is a very good film and has a short section about Prague Spring, which is interesting because it sort of shows it from a family's perspective. And so it doesn't really focus on the um, on the invasion, but rather like on how they react to it, which is completely not what you would expect. Um, then you have a sort of more traditional treatment of it with like the unbearable lightness of being, for example, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that movie. I don't think it's a great movie. Um, but it does sort of show some of that like ethos of Prague spring. Yeah. Um, there are two Czech movies that were made in the like early two thousands or yeah, like in the last 15 years, um, called Pelishki, which means cozy dens. And then one called rebels but both of them look at it like kind of ahistorically. And so you wouldn't really get a good sense of like what Prague Spring actually was. So no, I wouldn't really say there's a very good film or TV series that shows Prague Spring in its, okay. in its like as a whole. And have you seen that film Dubcheck that's just been made? No, I have not yet. Okay. That's a shame. I'll, I'll have to get you back for a film review. Okay. Okay. Happy to give it. Because <laughs> um, I've I've watched the trailer on um, YouTube and it, it does look quite interesting. And the guy is a really they've got a really strong resemblance. I know they can do a lot with uh-huh. prosthetics nowadays. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know uh, how optimistic about it I would be. Like we saw one about Jan Mosadik that was not great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. I'll lower my expectations. <laughs> um, you never know. Yeah, no, I never know. I, I live. I live in hope. Um, yeah. 
So if you were making a film about the Prague Spring, do, is there any piece of music that you think you've used as a soundtrack? Yeah, I love this question. Um, I think you would have to mix, like, I think you'd have to use kind of like the popular, like rock and pop of the era. And so yeah. you'd have to go with like Karel Gott and Marta Kubishova, um, who were like the really famous Czech superstars at that point. And then I think you'd have to intertwine it with like the rock that was really popular with the West. Cause I think that's still such a part of like modern culture. Like it was right when magical mystery tour came out and yeah. obviously there's a, there's a Beatles song for every mood. Yeah. So I think that if you, if you sort of intertwine things that were, that were new to the West with like songs that are so familiar, then that would really like capture the, you know, the struggle that people were going through at the time. Okay. I'll, 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 you'll have to send me some links for those because I haven't even tried to spell those uh, by writing them down. So, <laughs> sure, um, sure. Yeah, I'll definitely do that. Yeah. No, that's great. And, and if you could invite three personalities from the Cold War period to uh, have a few drinks and a chat with, who would they be? All right. So the first one would be Tito. The second one would be Milan Kundera. And the third one would be a random STB, that is security services collaborator from the normalization period. I don't think they would really want to talk to each other, but, you know, I could bribe them. Okay. So uh, <laughs> a, so an STB sort of informer collaborator. Yeah. I'd just be really yeah. curious um, as to that person's motivations. Like, why do, they, why do they choose to do that? Why did they sign up? Were they compelled to? Um, what were they getting out of it? Did they feel yeah. that they lost anything by doing it? Were they dedicated to the communist ideology? Did they love the regime? Like, was there, was there something good in it for them? Or was it just that it was keeping their family safe? Or like, yeah. like why, why would that person have chosen to collaborate? Yeah. Did you uh, listen to my Cloak and Dagger in Prague episode? I haven't listened to it yet. No, oh, it's on my you list. should. That's really interesting <laughs> about the STB. No, it's all right. You're excused. You don't. You don't have to have listened to all of them. But um, you might find that one that one interesting. What would What would you want okay. to ask um, Tito? Well, Tito. So I've never. I haven't. Like I've read a lot about Yugoslav history, but never studied it in like a super academic sense. Um, and I've traveled a bunch around the Balkans, and it has fascinated me how people it. And all the countries seem to like have loved and respected Tito, um, despite the fact that as soon as he died, the country basically fell apart. Or you know, not as soon as, but soon after. Yeah. Um, and so I just want to ask him like how he saw Yugoslavia as a nation, whether he thought that it would be able to succeed without him, um, and like I guess he wouldn't know how he single managed or single handedly managed to like hold this country together. But I would try to. To, to get it like where he you know saw his popularity coming from he just is a fascinating figure to me yeah yeah no no absolutely i i want to do a uh well at least a, a one podcast on yugoslavia and i think tito is a is a really interesting character um as as is yugoslavia being able to go mm-hmm. their own way yeah definitely well. yeah exactly sorry kundera what what would you want to <laughs> ask him well, yeah, that's sort of a like you know note of like personal uh, privilege, I guess, because he was reading Kundera was actually what originally drew me to study Czech language, and then eventually later Czech history. Mm-hmm. Um, and like as I found out more about his life, like he just became so curious to me, like how he really liked how he like joined on with communism right at the beginning, wrote Stalinist poems, and then his opinion of it evidently changed. Um, and so I guess I would I would ask him like you know what you know, what happened between him and the, and the party exactly in his words um, to make him act the way he did. And like, how does he feel looking back on it now? Because now he seems to, 
have a really low opinion of his home country and you know he's totally he's kept himself away from it doesn't write and check anymore and so I'm just curious as to like you know how he how he experienced all of that because I've yeah. you know read a lot of news about it and read a lot of his books but there's only so much you can get from yeah without talking to a person yeah no no that that's that's a that's a really good answer I am surprised you've not got Alexander Dubček in there <laughs> yeah I guess that would have been the obvious answer that would have yeah. been the obvious answer. But I like people this. who don't go for the obvious, to be honest. So, uh, <laughs> we just that, talked about Dubček so much. It just exactly. seemed like such a, a giveaway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 that's fine. Um, <laughs> and Clement Gottwald doesn't sound particularly interesting either. So <laughs> He really doesn't. No, he really doesn't. It could be interesting to talk maybe to the people who are tasked with keeping yeah. his embalmed body uh, viewable. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I was... I I went to Prague in 1981 and um, I visited the Clement Gottwald Museum. Wow. Um, How was it? uh, Probably the most boring museum I've ever been in. (laughs) Um, But um, it was interesting. When I I speak with uh, Mark Baker in the um, Cloak and Dagger in Prague, I I mention it and he, he remembers it being demolished and the stuff being taken out. Yeah, and actually, if you are interested in seeing Clement Gottwald in a more interesting sense, there's a mini series that uh, Czech television did called Czech Stolity, uh, like Czech Century, um, yeah. and there's a really great episode uh, with Clement Gottwald uh, and Rudolf Slonsky, who of course is like one of the people killed in the Slonsky trials. Yeah, um, and it really it like depicts them as like characters, and it's like it's fictionalized history, but it's a really really yeah. cool treatment of history. Oh, great. Okay, well, I'm, you're going to have to send me a very long email with loads of links. Um, I will happily do that. For these, because I'm not keeping track of uh, what all of these are. And are there any books in English that you think would be uh, recommended for anybody interested in the Prague Spring? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would, um, obviously, again, my opinion, I would direct people towards Kundera, um, although I do think that the Book of Laughter and Forgetting is a better book. Uh, and a better treatment of the history than the unbearable lightness of being. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a couple of recommendations from Socialism Realized. Uh, one of them is Denyek Linar's Night Frost in Prague. Uh, another is Gordon Skilling's Czechoslovakia's Interrupted Revolution. And then finally, Kieran Williams' The Prague Spring and Its Aftermath. Okay. That sounds like good recommendations there. I mean, one book that so. I read quite early on about the Prague Spring was... Um, Alan Levy's Too Many Heroes. Mm, I've heard of that, but I haven't read it myself. Um, I think it's out of print, but um, okay. it was quite a good description. You know, he's an American journalist and he describes the invasion and, um, you know, what, what goes on in Prague, particularly over those first few days mm-hmm. um, of the occupation. But um, I haven't read it in a while, actually. It's probably one of those books where I read it again and I think, mm, perhaps it's not as good as I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So where can people find you online? Um, well, once again, I'll plug my website. That is socialismrealize.eu. And we spell realize the British way. So that's with an S rather than a Z. Um, good. Importantly. That's very good. <laughs> it was EU funded. So, you know, we went with the EU country. Uh, and then you can find us on Twitter at, at socialismr. Um, and then if you're looking for me personally, that is at Lonnie, L-A-N-I, four, nine. Okay. 
Well, that's all we had time for, but it was great to speak to Lani and hear what she had discovered in her research, and it certainly provided me with some new insights into the Prague Spring. There's extra information in the show notes detailing the films, music, locations, and books that Lani mentioned. The show notes can be found at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 14. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave reviews on iTunes or with your podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.